Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist George Will offers his thoughts on American conservatism. He's interviewed by Jonah Goldberg, senior editor at National Review. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. So, George Will. Uh, I'm going to call you George, if that's okay. You may. Thank you. Uh, never thought I'd get there in my life, but... <laughs> um, uh, of all things, uh, a university looms very large in your book, Princeton. It's basically the story of three Princetons, is your book. Can you explain what you're getting at there? Well, I, I do think you can understand almost all of American political thought as an argument between uh, James Madison of the class of, I think, 1771, and Thomas Woodrow Wilson, Tommy as he was known when he was at Princeton, of the class of 1879. Madison being the giver of our Madisonian institutional architecture and the natural rights doctrine that underlies it. Woodrow Wilson being the foremost and most thoughtful of those who forthrightly rejected this. And it's to their credit that they didn't kid one another. Woodrow Wilson was the first American president to criticize the American founding, which he didn't do peripherally. He did it root and branch. He said the whole architecture with the separation of powers was fine once when there were four million of us, 80% living within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater. But now that we're a great country united by steel rails and copper wires and all that, we need a, a more nimble government that can act with dispatch under a president remarkably like Woodrow Wilson. But there's a third Princeton, which is your Princeton. You yes, attended Princeton. I did indeed. And you did your your PhD thesis on basically the intersection of these? Well, not the PhD thesis, but... It was PhD okay. thesis, yes. <clears throat> it's called beyond, was called Beyond the Reach of Majorities. It's a phrase from the second of the flag salute cases where the Supreme Court, after just three years, reversed the first one, saying that it is indeed permissible under the First Amendment to... Uh, not permissible to force Jehovah's Witnesses' children to salute the flag. In his opinion, Justice Jackson, later famous as the uh, for his service at the Nuremberg Tribunals, said, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities away from the vicissitudes of politics. And in a way, what I'm arguing about is whether America is about a process, majority rule, or whether it's about a condition, which is liberty. I come down for liberty. And in a way, uh, this started in my mind, I think, before Princeton. I grew up in central Illinois, where you to grow up there is to be marinated in the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. I grew up in Champaign County. In the Champaign County courthouse, according to local lore, the prosperous railroad lawyer, Abraham Lincoln, first learned about the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Compromise of 1850, the product of another Illinoisan, uh, <laughs> Stephen A. Douglas. And it was Lincoln's protracted, canny recoil against the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the idea that popular sovereignty should settle the question of the expansion of slavery into the territories it was that that launched his career, in my judgment, the greatest career in the history of world politics. He said that some things are beyond the reach of majorities. Property and human beings is one of those. Um, or as Calvin Coolidge, praise be upon him, um, <laughs> said one with the law on his side is a majority. Precisely. Right. 
Um, okay, so you write in The Conservative Sensibility, uh, my subject is American conservatism. My conviction is that properly understood, conservatism is the Madisonian persuasion. And my melancholy belief is that Woodrow Wilson was the most important single fi figure in the largely successful campaign to convince the nation that the Madisonian persuasion is an anachronism. So we'll get to Wilson in a little bit, I trust me. Uh, but uh, why don't you lay out exactly what the Madisonian persuasion is? The Madisonian persuasion is that, uh, first of all, the doctrine of natural rights, which is that our rights precede government. They are not given by government. I think you can argue, and I shall now do so, that the most important word in the Declaration of Independence is secure. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. First come rights, then comes government. From this follows an inherent limitation on what government's for. It is protect the sovereignty of the individual and his exercise as a rights-bearing creature of his rights. This is what the progressives, as I say, forthrightly rebelled against. Uh, beginning with the doctrine of natural rights. They said, oh, it's, all, it's rooted in a kind of anthropological fantasy of a state of nature, which never existed. Of course, the founders were not dopes. They knew that. Right. But, uh, and they said, therefore, uh, if we're going to have a sufficiently ambitious government, we need to get rid of that. We need a government that is not limited to securing rights, but uh, delivers other public goods and happiness. And so, you, you're quite explicit, and you return to this theme quite often in the book, that the, the doctrine, the Madisonian persuasion, and the um, whole idea of separation of powers, and the whole idea of natural rights, all hinge on this idea, this assertion, that there is something called human nature. As I often put it, human nature has no history, right? Or, and that... That's exactly right. The great meaning large, not meaning beneficial. The great achievement of 19th century political philosophy was to invent and invest with great dignity the idea that human nature has a history. Indeed, the human nature is history. It is that we have no human nature. Human beings are simply creatures that can acquire culture. What this does is it emancipates government for an enormous project, which is to fine-tune and shape the consciousness of its subjects. Hence, the road to totalitarianism, about which you have written <laughs> definitively. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, but so, let, let's just explain this a little bit more. Um, why does the Madisonian persuasion, why does the separation of powers, why does the role of natural rights and limited government hinge on this idea that human nature is a constant and not a changing thing, that human nature isn't the anthropomorphized version of the living constitution that just changes with every generation. Why is that so important to the founding's ideas? It's, it's important. I'll get to the founders in a moment. Retrospectively, sure. looking back at them from a vantage point of the 21st century, having seen all the atrocities of the 20th century, when the totalitarians came to power and said, we're going to create the new Aryan man, or the new Soviet man, people said... This is a wonderful thing that government can now do. It can shape the consciousness of the people, particularly armed with certain modern techniques, 
bureaucracy, technologies of communication, radio to Hitler and, and movies to Hitler and all the rest. But working back from our calamitous experience with the consciousness raisers and improvers of the 20th century, uh, the founder said it's important to understand what government is good for and what is not. And what government is not good for is dealing with uh, human beings as they're not. Begin with as they are. Interested creatures. And you take that good nail, but you take it seriously. Self-interested creatures. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So you call the book The Conservative Sensibility. Why sensibility, not doctrine, ideology, or just yeah. conservatism full stop? Sensibility is uh, it's more than an attitude. It's less than an agenda. Mm-hmm. It means it's a way of seeing and experiencing and responding to the flux of events. It's a, whether or not a particular sensibility, the conservative sensibility, is comfortable with spontaneous order of society, to use one of Hayek's phrases. It's comfortable with the market-driven uncertainties of an open future. Virginia Postrel, one of Washington's intellectual ornaments, <laughs> once said, the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is, God created men and women and then lost control of events. <laughs> A conservative likes the fact that it's out of control. Uh, someone said, what's your doctrine? I'd say, I'm a, I'm a Lucretian. I like the world. <laughs> I like the sense that who knows what's coming next. And that's the point. You don't want to know what's coming next because that would mean the future is planned and therefore the future is closed. You want to avoid Hayek's fatal conceit, the idea that you can plan the future in this way. You want to welcome whirl, if you will. And that's the conservative sensibility. It's funny. I I once put it that the defining feature of conservatism is a very similar point, is comfort with contradiction. Yes. Right? There's something about the progressive mindset that says... All organs of the body politic must be working in harmony. Every, all good things go together. And the conservative is willing to understand that there is a downside to every good thing and there's an upside to almost every bad thing. And well, that discomforts people. Yeah, well, progressivism grew to confidence and consciousness of itself in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century when science was in the air and applied science. Ford, Marconi, Edison, the Wright brothers, all of that. And they were going to bring science to bear on society. They were going to plan things. Now, to plan things, you need planners. And that would be the few. And the planned would be the many. And it was this enormous hubris of progressivism that said, once we get the right kind of people with the right kind of power, wielding the right kind of knowledge, all will be well. Um. So, among many of mine, and presumably yours, uh, friends on the right these days who are very sympathetic to this idea of a conservative nationalism, um, which is seems to be riding very high in the saddle uh, for reasons we can get to later, but it is it, it, it feels, at least in the moment, like an idea whose time has come for a lot of people. I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, but one of the things that you almost have to issue a trigger warning before you say it to them is this idea that America is an idea. 
you come down fairly strongly on the side of America as an idea. Yes, as Mr. Lincoln said at Gettysburg, we are dedicated to a proposition. Or as Margaret Thatcher said, European nations were made by history, the United States was made by philosophy. Okay, so, and to that end, you write, uh, by 1770, more and more Americans were arguing that their rights derived not from the common law of placid, settled England, but rather were natural rights that existed in the essentially pre-political conditions of the American wilderness. So when John Adams asked, how do we... New England men derive our laws, he answered, not from parliament, not from common law, and, but from the law of nature. In an America that was not conquered, but a discovered country. You also add, America was not, America was not, this is, I guess, still John Adams, America was not granted of the king by his grace, but was dearly, very dearly earned by the planters in the labor, blood, and treasure which they expanded to subdue it by cultivation. And then you say, Americans had not had not brought their rights with them by ship from England. Rather, they had it, were, had it as it were, found them in the wilderness. Now, what, what I find interesting about this is I'm, I'm in a gray area between these two camps. Uh, what do you say to people who say, you know, the colonists or the founding generation, one of the reasons why they rebelled is they felt that what, they were being denied what they called their ancient English rights and liberties. Or as de Tocqueville said, the American is the Englishman left alone. Um, is there no room for uh, saying that this was an evolved thing, that the American nation was a nation before it was an idea? It did evolve, and Americans began their restive and eventually violent re- resistance to the British, thinking they, were, they wanted to be Englishmen and weren't being treated as proper Englishmen by the distant people in Westminster. By the time of... July 4th, 1776, it was different. They had said, no, actually, we don't, we don't want to be English anymore. And if the English had come and said, oh, well, all right, all is forgiven, they would have said, no, I think it was too late by then. Mm-hmm. By then, and the, and the tumultuous six years preceding that, they had come to understand that they were, as a people, and they were a people, they were different. Um, okay, so, yeah, so in, in, in a sense... They'd, they'd come up with the idea of America, but yeah. that idea has deep roots going back into English culture and custom. Sure. Right? Okay. Um, I mean, the American present was, was uh, pregnant with the immediate future, which was uh, to translate the fact that they had been colonists and had discovered in this errand into the wilderness uh, that they were more than that. Uh, yeah, one of the examples I often cite, I use it in my book, is um, you know the Fourth Amendment uh, has its roots in quirky English culture going back to the 6th or 7th century where the sovereign or the head man could not enter someone's hut without permission. And it gets refined and becomes a man's, man is, uh, man, uh, man's home is his castle and all of that. Um, the founders, as I would put it, they drew on the English culture and custom, but they kind of put it in a centrifuge, and they refined these principles to become abstract universals that informed the American founding. Does that sound about right? Precisely. Okay. So let's move on to the fun part. Um, I don't know if you know this about me. I've long considered myself the honorary chairman of the International Order of Woodrow Wilson haters. <laughs> and so in one sense, the chapter on Woodrow Wilson was a great comfort to me, and, and I was cheering often. 
On the other hand, I sometimes think you weren't hard enough on him, but um, we can leave that for a different conversation. The question is, what is your, let's get to you, what your brief against Woodrow Wilson was in, in the meat of it. Uh, a few years ago at, at Princeton, the African-American students becoming more cognizant than they had been of Woodrow Wilson's retrograde views on race, particularly his resegregating the federal workforce, uh, became up in arms about him and wanted certain things renamed, Woodrow Wilson School, Wilson College, all the rest. I offered to come to Princeton and teach them how to really dislike <laughs> more comprehensively. Uh, he was uh, full of the progressive confidence uh, in that uh, freedom was, he said, the history of freedom is the history of limited government. Clearly, he did not think the future of, of uh, freedom was that. Uh, he had this uh, unshakable belief that he got from Herbert Crowley and others in the application of expertise, that is, him and his friends, applying it uh, to, uh, to society. And he began, as I say, as the first president to criticize the American founding, to say that, that we have turned a corner and that America must get over its founding. People, when they say, George, what are conservatives trying to conserve? The answer is the American founding, the, the premises that produced the architecture. Um, and so, you know, it's fine. I think the last time I did one of these interviews for C-SPAN, it was with Yuval Levin, and I told him I thought there was going to be no Hegel. But, um, <laughs> but Woodrow Wilson gets a lot of his thinking from, not to get too deep in the weeds, from German historicism, from Hegel, um, from this idea that, and from Darwin, that 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 nations and peoples evolve over time, and that he was going to be essentially a guiding hand of the evolution of the people, which is somewhat contrary to the way the founders viewed things. In order to get an advanced degree in the second half of the 19th century, you really had to go to Germany. The German universities were the gold standard. And Wil uh, Wilson didn't, but a lot of his professors did. He went to Johns Hopkins, which was basically the first German-style university. Exactly. Right. And, and uh, those who scholars, American young scholars who went to Germany, came back with a robust faith in German bureaucracy, in the German state, as a disinterested uh, application of knowledge. And for, for that reason, they began to feel that the United States needed that kind of kind of state to subsume the factions in America and, and make us a homogeneous and united people. So homogeneous and so united, so enveloped in a new consensus produced by science, that, including political science, that Madison's worry about majority rule and minority being oppressed didn't work. It didn't, was, was a, a worry we'd superseded because we were now a mature society with a broad consensus and, and the problem of minority rights didn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, that's, it, it's, that, that sort of points to some my mild disappointment is that the, the true scope of Wilson's oppression of minorities throwing political prisoners in jail, of the declarations against hyphenated Americans, what we did to Germans in this country... Um, I just, I guess my th my point is, is that my appetite for Wilson bashing is fairly <laughs> unsatiable. But I, 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 I do have a question which I've been 
looking for, this has been a mystery to me for a very long time. Uh, when I started being interested in this stuff in the progressive era, um, I went back and I read early editions of National Review. I read, and I, I read a lot of the founders of modern American conservatism. It is this strange lacuna where the, the way the modern conservative movement, which really begins after World War II, talks about the history of progressivism, they talk as if it started in 1932, and there really wasn't very much attention played to Wilson. Why is it that it took conservatives, um, you know, starting with perhaps the guys at the, at the Claremont Institute and elsewhere, to realize that they were walking into the movie sort of halfway in, and that really the New Deal is basically just an extension of what happened under Wilson. Yes, people forgot whose assistant secretary of the Navy Franklin Roosevelt was. Right. He came to Washington to serve in the Wilson administration, and he was caught up in the Versailles euphoria and all the rest. Um, but what? But contemporary conservatives in the 19... It's very difficult to find people who qualify... As, I guess my question is... People who qualify as conservatives in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, it was never part of the sort of, or even into the 50s, part of the standard conservative indictment of progressivism to start with Wilson. Is there, do you have any idea why he was just sort of invisible to the conservative gaze for so long? I don't know why he was invisible, but it is simply a fact that for a great many of the people in those years, Conservatism was a reaction against the New Deal. Right. And therefore a reaction against Franklin Roosevelt. Now, if you're going to react against Roosevelt as the first modern president, you have to understand that he wasn't. That the first modern president really was, if not Woodrow Wilson, it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who had a theory of the presidency, which was that presidents are permitted to do anything they're not explicitly forbidden to do. Right. And he had this whole idea, the stewardship idea of the presidency, which was he was responsible for the public good, period. And an enormous explosion of executive power has been rippling through us ever since. So you, the, the, you, you would attribute the rise in the essentially, for want of a more accurate term, monarchical presidency to Roosevelt and not to Wilson. No, I would. I would. It, it, the germ certainly was was in Wilson with his uh -huh. idea that the the purpose of a president is to interpret some, uh, an exercise he didn't make clear, but he was to interpret the real will and the real interests, not the same thing, mm -hmm. of the American public, and presidents were uniquely situated to do that. Um, so probably the most. Uh Surprising to some, or controversial to some, uh, chapters, chapter four, where you come out in favor of judicial supervision. And this is the basic idea that the courts should play the role of ensuring liberty as they see it, regardless of the majorities, that this is now where the spirit of Madison has a chance to work its will, yeah. right? Um, that's a, that has not always been your position. It has not. No, okay. I mean, it's a 180-degree change. <laughs> I, Bob Bork was a very good friend of mine, and I was a Borkian, fought like a tiger, as usual, uh -huh. in vain, uh, for his confirmation in 1987. And Bork was in the Oliver Wendell Holmes school. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes was one of the progressives' pinups because right. he said, if the people want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. Right. By that he meant... 
America is about majority rule, and if majorities want it, A, they should get it, but should or not, they're going to get it, because he was a great believer in the physics of politics, that the power of the majority will prevail, should prevail, but will anyway, whether it should or not. I thought about this for a while, and for many years, I my uh, intelligence was bewitched by my language, as I think a lot of conservatives was, because in reaction against some of the more imaginative discoveries of rights and procedural uh, reforms for our Constitution of the Warren Court. People said, that's judicial activism, and therefore we're for judicial pacifism. My argument is that judicial deference to Congress, to executives, to lower state governments and all the rest, is a form of dereliction of duty because the court is to uh, referee the excesses of democracy, of which there are many and potentially infinite, and that therefore what you need is the title of the chapter to which you refer, the judicial supervision of democracy. Um, I want to get back to that in a second because it's... Give me one example. Jim Crow Mm -hmm. was local democracy in action. Jim Crow laws were popular. Right. with the, the, the white majority that implemented them. And along came the Supreme Court and said, we don't care. And the Supreme Court was right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that example. Um, One of the, I mean, it's, it's an interesting fact about our time that the most interesting arguments often are not between liberals or progressives and conservatives. They're among conservatives. Sure. And this is one. Yeah. The, there's a wonderful man at the... Uh, the Cato Institute called Clark Neely mm-hmm. wrote a book called Judicial Engagement, and I urge everyone to read it. Um, I want to get back to this in a second, but this is another one of these questions that I would just curious if you have an answer for. I Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, was a passionate eugenicist, as you talk about in here, and had some really uh, complicated views on some things. But on his judicial restraint position, do you think that Holmes would have been in favor of judicial restraint if the progressives weren't doing what he wanted them to do? Yes. I think he got his political philosophy at Ball's Bluff and Antietam and elsewhere. He, he went through the war and emerged as someone who thought the universe was a stark, deadly, force-ridden place. Get over it. And I think he would have, as he said, if people want to go to hell, I'll help them. It's my job. Um. So back, so back to this idea, the, the, the basic notion, which informs the entire book, is that the, the Declaration of Independence um, really is, in some ways, the more important document. You can't understand the Constitution's point without first understanding the Declaration's point, that we are all endowed by our Creator with inalienable rights, that, human, that therefore we're all equal, must be equal in the eyes of government, and that the government's r- prerogatives are... Uh, cannot supersede the rights which are prior. That you know, mm-hmm. the Bill of Rights starts framing all of, saying Congress shall pass no law, saying that because the individual rights are more important. Um, but the the idea, so the, your idea of judicial supervision is that whenever the majorities encroach upon individual liberty or the indi- or natural rights, that regardless of the majorities, the the courts should side with the individual against any institutions, uh, government institutions, any laws that infringe upon these, right? That would be hard libertarianism. Uh I'm a soft, squishy libertarian. 
in that I say the following. Before the government interferes with the freedom of the individual or of two or more individuals collaborating together, it ought to have a good reason and ought to tell us what it is. Now, if the government thoroughly explained itself, a lot of what it does, it would quit doing because people would say, you can't be serious. A lot of our regulations are obviously rent-seeking on the part of interest groups, bending public power to private advantage. Um, but so you come out in favor, you, you've decided that the Lochner decision, uh, Supreme Court decision in 1905, um, was correctly decided. And, yes. and Lochner, for, for C-SPAN viewers who don't know, is considered a fairly radioactive <laughs> Uh, Supreme Court decision. Uh, why don't you explain your reasoning why you think it was correctly yeah. decided? Yeah, Lochner is, is cited by progressives, particularly as an example of judicial imperialism run amok and the will of the people frustrated. Uh, some large and unionized bakeries in New York got a law passed restricting the number of hours that could be worked in bakeries. They pretended that this was a public health measure. It was rent-seeking. It was an attempt to disadvantage the smaller bakeries that worked longer hours, that weren't unionized, and had to do both, stay non-unionized and work longer hours in order to survive. So they said, well, we'll just pass a law that handicaps them. The court recognized that this was bogus public health measure. Mm -hmm. Public health and safety had nothing to do with it. It was rent-seeking, and they overturned it. And uh, I think it was correctly decided. A few of us do. <laughs> uh, David Bernstein at George Mason Law School has a wonderful book called Rehabilitating Lochner. Yeah. yeah. And um, we're going to win that one sooner or later. So, but this dynamic that you're describing, which is uh, a minor obsession of mine and informs a lot of passages in the book, of, of factions, as you put it, you know, seek, rent-seeking, factions conspiring to bend the law to protect them, the major act. You know, Mark Zuckerberg recently said that he'd be in favor of government regulation. Um, of course of, he would. Because he's the major player. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's like the head of U.S. Steel called for the socializa socialization of the steel industry in the early 1900s. He didn't mean take away his profits. He just meant take away his competition. Yes. Um, but uh, the underlying theory around whether you call it public choice theory or if you speak of it in Madisonian terms or even Adam Smith terms. You know, Adam Smith has a wonderful passage in The Wealth of Nations where he says, seldom will two men of the same business or trade meet in a pub or an inn where the conversation doesn't quickly turn to a conspiracy against the public good. And what Smith says is, and I think what Madison would say, is that uh, you can't prevent that. That is human nature. What you can prevent is the government sanctioning that conspiracy of saying that this faction now has the protection of the state. As Joseph Schumpeter long argued, monopolies will not last unless the government sustains them. Um, the concern I have about, um, I'm, this may be a weak connection here, but it's, it's, it's where my brain goes on this, with this idea of, of making the judicial branch much more powerful, is that the dangers of faction are omnipresent because they're instantiated in human nature. And so the, the troubles that you um, see in the administrative state or in Congress or in the executive branch, there are going to be new problems that would come by giving the courts 
ever more power Absolutely. as well. There is no safety. There's no safe haven in life. The question is, what do you fear most? And at this stage in our history, I fear uh, the administrative state and the executive, the presidency that drives it, and the Congress that has willy-nilly delegated away powers it has no right to delegate away. What do I fear least? I don't, it's not that I don't fear the courts. I fear them <laughs> least. Okay. Um, that's, that's fair. Uh, let's talk about the administrative state for a second. Can I, before you do that, uh-huh. you, you used a magic phrase that I think I want to acquaint viewers with. That's public choice theory. Sure. Invented by James Buchanan and some others at the University of Virginia. It says simply this. You want a Nobel Prize, and I'm going to boulderize it, but it comes down to this. We're in the boulderizing business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, uh, government is not a disinterested thing. That just as people in the private sector try to maximize their income, people in the public sector try to maximize their profits. And to avoid the romantic, sentimentalized view of government, you must understand that, that government itself is a faction, that government is interested, that government is chock full of people trying to maximize their influence, their domains, their missions, and their power. And once you have this view of government, and you understand that most of what government does is not in response to majorities, majorities have no idea most of what the government's doing, It is rather in response to intense, compact, articulate, wealthy, confident, and well-lawyered minorities that you begin to see that government must be looked at as a problem. It's well put. I mean, uh, the sugar subsidy is a great example of Sugar subsidy is is an example of what makes Washington run, which is it's the law of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. We have sugar quotas to hold up the price of sugar, to benefit of very few, very affluent sugar growers. And we disperse the costs of billions and billions of dollars across all the consumers in America who eat sugar, which is everybody, and no one notices except the very grateful, compact minority of sugar growers. Um, But so let's, let's talk very briefly about the administrative state, which is basically the apparatus that is most responsive to this or most uh, manifests itself most this dynamic. Where yes, it is. it is the reason why five of the ten richest counties in America by per capita income are in the Washington area. We don't make anything except trouble. We have no natural resources, but we have an enormous amount of money sloshing through us. Someone, I wish I could remember his name at the Cato Institute, said, lay out a picnic you expect to draw ants. The biggest <laughs> picnic in the world is the federal budget, and the ants are the interest groups. Um, so, so just stay, all right, so staying back on the court part for a moment. One of the thing, reasons I'm struggling is, is is you have what I call on my um, my podcast the the Tyler Cowen problem of having succinct answers, which give me a little time to <laughs> formulate the next question, but. Um, uh, I'm totally with you on uh, the the decay of that we see in our society about uh, uh, adherence to the the vision of the founders, the principles of the founders, natural rights, the importance of liberty, and all the rest. But isn't wouldn't the founders themselves say that at the end of the day, rather than having judges, you know, just hand the judiciary over to the federal society, which would make me happy? Um, 
But isn't the really only lasting solution to the problems that you're describing is to actually get the American people themselves to care more about these things? Absolutely, and I admit that. Because at the end of the day, the judges are appointed by and confirmed by elected politicians. And at the end of the day, therefore, if you really want lasting changes, you have to change the mood of the country and the values of the country and the worries of the country so that the elected officials will produce a different judiciary. Um, right. I mean, I, I, I don't all that often give Barack Obama a lot of credit for things, but one of the things he said, which upset some of our louder friends on the right, was that the only thing that gives the Constitution any power is our faith in it, which is absolutely true. But this is the essence of medicine. I want to promote someone else's book for a minute. Okay. Best book ever written on medicine's thought is by Greg Weiner at Assumption College called Madison's Metronome. Madison said majorities ought to rule, majorities are going to rule, therefore care must be taken that majority opinion is slowed and refined and filtered so that what we have, and this is my favorite of all Madison's phrases, we have mitigated democracy. That's what I'm for. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so Madison understood this. People who believe in judicial supervision of democracy believe this. Those of us who believe that John Marshall, who invented basically uh, judicial review, is the third most important American public figure after Lincoln and Washington, uh, we understand that it all rests, as my hero Lincoln said, everything rests on public opinion. Public opinion is shiftable sand. And therefore, you and I are in the business of trying to shift the sand with controversial journalism. But so isn't one of the, the, one of the things I appreciate most about the Madisonian vision is um, the ecosystem of it, that um, most people's interests are in front of their face closer to home, in the places mm -hmm. where they live, and um, and most of the solutions to their problems are close to where they live. And the a healthy society, I'm, I'm, if, I, if there's one thing I'm against in, in all public policy discussions is, for want of a better phrase, philosophical monism, or, or the idea that one thing is the only mm. important thing. And what is great about the Madisonian vision is that it allows for the most people to live the way that they want to live. And by definition, someone in Topeka is going to have a different conception of the good life than someone in San Francisco or in Georgia. And um, so isn't one of the major problems that we have today is that, in a sense, the Wilsonian vision of the country being unified into a whole makes it's ruining the nooks and crannies and the the... the the separated powers, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level, sort of vanish as we all look to Washington um, as a conception of living in one nation rather than in, in a thousand different or ten thousand different communities. Yes, and we increasingly look to Washington askance. 1964, the year I cast my first presidential vote for the person to whom I dedicate this book, The Memory of Barry Goldwater. Praise be upon him. <laughs> 1964. 77% of the American people said they trusted the government to do the right thing all the time or almost all the time. Today, that number is under 20. What's happened since then? What's happened since then is the gold anti-Goldwater landslide was such 
that it produced for the first time since the late 30s, a liberal legislating majority in Congress. And under the Great Society, the federal government lost all restraint and began producing a single great society for the United States against all that you hold dear. Right. As the government's pretensions grew, its prestige plummeted. Cause and effect, I'm sorry, it just, it just is. And that's what people are now rethinking and are, I think, uh, increasingly open to a conservative argument about this. Um, so it's interesting, though, uh, and this is as close as we get to a gotcha question in this conversation, is the, uh, for, the, for students such as myself of your career, um, one of the remarkable things about this book is how different it is from a previous book of yours, Statecraft as Soulcraft, um, which one could argue came from a, a Burkean European point of view of doing precisely what we're talking yeah. about, of imposing a single vision about how people should live in a good society and all the rest. You've moved away from that and more somewhat. towards somewhat. Yeah. Okay. Let, me, let, me, let me explain. Sure. Uh, <coughs> The Statecraft of Soulcraft, published in 1983, was essentially the Godkin Lectures I gave at Harvard in 1981. The title of the book is interesting. The subtitle is more so. The title was Statecraft as Soulcraft. The subtitle was What Government Does, not what it should do, Mm -hmm. what it can't help but do. My point was that government frames a society, creates institutions, and these have consequences on the soul. That's soulcraft. For example, it's a paradox, but one worth repeating. A free market is a government creation. It requires contract law and fraud law and courts and adjudication, all the rest, arbitration. And when the government does this, it is choosing the kind of people we're going to be. What made the argument, our first great political argument between the anti-federalists and the federalists, was about what kind of people we'd be. It was about what kind of constitution we'd have and all that. But basically, Jeffersonian people said, we kind of like the idea of a republic of sturdy yeomen, far enough distant from one another that they could not see the smokestack from the cabin or hear the other guy's axe. Fine. (laughs) Hamilton, in other words, I want people rather like Jefferson on his mountaintop. Hamilton said, no, no, we want restless, striving, entrepreneurial, upwardly mobile people, rather like Alexander Hamilton. And the argument was just that. It was not about just the institutions, although the argument they had in the Federalist Papers, which were newspaper columns to rebut the anti-Federalists, the argument was about what kind of people will we be? We're Hamiltonians. Um, Okay. So... uh, and this is just me, me indulging some of my um, uh, curiosities here. Uh, in a large book about conservatism, um, the term neoconservative appears nowhere that I could find. I mean, maybe I missed it, but it's Don't not in the so. index. Don't think so. What, uh, what, what, what was neoconservatism by your lights, or what is it? Um, I, I, it's curious, uh, the pedigree of that term... Uh, is odd because I think it was first used for some disillusioned Democrats. Mm-hmm. Pat Moynihan, who is 
the book is full of Pat. Yes. This is my closest, I, I have a, I have my, a Pat Moynihan question up here. <laughs> well, I'll defer to that. But Pat Moynihan, Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazer, Irving Crystal, James Q. Wilson, who were associated with a small but enormously influential quarterly, now deceased, called The Public Interest. And these were people who were having second thoughts in Hayekian terms mm-hmm. about the ability of uh, a central government to manage the complexities of a creatively free society. Then came Iraq. Then came uh, the unipolar world as it briefly existed after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And neoconservatism as a term became associated primarily with foreign policy. And George W. Bush's freedom agenda, the idea that the world craves freedom, that the world understands freedom the same way we do, and that we know how to export it. We are sadder but wiser today because we don't believe that anymore. And that is why I think, uh, I think one of the fatalities in the Iraq war was neoconservatism. Okay. I, I, I think that's actually fairly accurate. I think you skipped a chapter or two um, in that there was a second wave of so-called neoconservatives, Gene Kirkpatrick, sure. Norma Vuerts, who had turned neoconservatism into a foreign policy notion when, in reality, I would argue that the people you're talking about, I know you were close to some of them, uh, had the conservative sensibility about their previous positions. They, they realized the unintended consequences of the great society. And, um, you know, Irving Kristol wrote a famous essay that is almost echoed in here of the American Revolution as a successful revolution precisely because it took human nature into account. Mm-hmm. And the, but I agree with you in your conclusion that neoconservatism now just means hawkishness in foreign policy, right. which is sort of a silly cul-de-sac at this point. But it does, I was trying to steer us to foreign policy. Uh, uh, you are more a realist about foreign policy now than, I mean, you've always been sort of a realist, but your position here yes. is yes. decidedly realist. Uh, that the, this, the realm outside of our borders is always going to be informed by things like war. Um, when do you sort of explain where you come down on foreign policy now? I think there's a, a tension that will always be with us in America in thinking about foreign policy. I think it was Lord Bryce who said the in the American Commonwealth, great 19th century book on us, he said what Americans want in foreign policy is as little of it as possible. <laughs> we came here to get away from there, this nation of immigrants, we had two docile neighbors and two broad oceans, and we wanted the world to keep its distance. On the other hand, there was from the start, from the declaration, from the announcing of universal principles applicable to all peoples everywhere, a tendency, attempt, I'd say a temptation, but it's also a, a, an obligation of some universal we're the, we're the custodians of certain universal truths. And that is not just a temptation, it is a duty to mm-hmm. behave accordingly on the world stage. We didn't have to worry about this until uh, the first half of the 20th century when we got pulled irrevocably into world history. And since then, we've been trying to, to balance these things. National interest understood practically and prudentially with the fact that we are indeed a nation that says some things are true, self-evidently true, meaning true to all minds not clouded by superstition, 
And we, as the custodians of these, we have certain obligations to others beyond our, our shores. Yeah, it's the fight between Jefferson and Hamilton about the French Revolution. Precisely. Um, uh, so just since you mentioned Pat, Manahan, Pat Moynihan, who's a very close friend of yours. Yes. Um, and one of the people you mo- statesmen you most admire, fair to say. Mm-hmm. I get that entirely as an intellectual. Um, as a senator, it was a more mixed bag, and I just was always curious about how you reconcile. That's, reconcil- that's, what, that's what prudence is. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's applying general principles to untidy reality, which Pat did. I mean, he was elected by uh, a complicated eastern state. He was a New Deal liberal uh, from the start and at the end, never changed. Uh, finest social scientist ever to serve in elective office in this country. I once said... That's really, it's a little bit like the best Oktoberfest in Orlando, but I get your point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I once said, he, while in the Senate, he wrote more books than his colleagues read, which is naughty of me, but true. But probably true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the greatest, this is my 50th year in Washington, and the greatest pleasure of them was knowing Pat. Yeah. It was just, uh, it was... I think I think it was Winston Churchill said that meeting Franklin Roosevelt was like opening a bottle of champagne. That's the way I felt about being in Pat's presence. Yeah, I was very fortunate as a young person to in Washington to get to know him a little bit. Where I you know, doubt he would ever remember me, you know, back when he was around. Um, so uh, we have a little time left. And so there's one thing that I, I think just viewers will be interested in. You are a... I can't remember the term you use in it. A modest atheist, a, 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 a an amiable low voltage atheist. Amiable low voltage atheist. Um, uh, how do you make the case for squaring what you believe are natural rights uh, that are endowed by our Creator and are the uh, nature's God? I know yeah, that's the, part of your key. Jefferson's equivocation. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> How do you square this without believing actually in the existence of God? Because I believe natural rights are rights crucial to the flourishing of people with our natures. I just said it without <laughs> reference to any divine being. So, but right, so this is one of these things. The the I've always thought or long thought that one of the most brilliant things about the Declaration of Independence is the great punt that they take in saying it's self-evident. Because it's not self-evident. It actually is, is, is a very difficult thing to argue, and they just assert it. And, I, and from my perspective, thank God that they did. But um, uh, well, I, I a moment ago used the, the code. Self-evident to them meant evident to minds not clouded by superstition. Evident to clear thinkers. The existence of natural rights. Yes. Right. Um, okay. Uh, uh, and so, with the time we have left, I thought I would at least point out, because one of the things that has made this a pleasurable experience for me, and I hope for you, Indeed. is the fact that um, we have not mentioned the 45th president of the United States in this entire conversation. More interesting to me is the fact that he's not mentioned in the book as well. Um, I will not, you know, it's sort of like uh, Beetlejuice. I'm not sure I want to say his name. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, what was your thinking about that? Uh, I understand that one of the points of this, in which I, I firmly believe, is that this is a book for a long shelf life, pardon the pun, yes. and uh, not bound in the contingency of the moment, but uh, why don't you... The, 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 uh, 
the nation didn't need another Washington book about Washington's current distempers. And Washington didn't need more attention paid to this fellow who gets ample attention paid to him. Uh, his name doesn't appear in the book. Neither does the name of Audrey Hepburn or Charlemagne, a lot of other people who have nothing... <laughs> Jonah Goldberg, much to my dismay. <laughs> who have nothing to do with conservatism. Sure. This is a book of political philosophy, and he's not engaged in that, to put it mildly. Okay, so that, with the very little time we have left, give me a segue that I, I did want to get to. I, I hinted at this before about this, this renaissance, as it were, of conservative nationalism, or, or conservatives calling themselves nationalists. Uh, David Hazoni has a book out that won the Conservative Book a Year Award. Um, it's a good and interesting book. I have profound disagreements with it, um, where he just throws out root and branch lock. says that nations are a different creature. Um, where do you come down on this argument about nationalism um, versus uh, traditional American conservatism? Well, <clears throat> there's patriotism and then there's nationalism. Patriotism is love of one's country. There are American patriots, there are Italian patriots, there are Danish patriots. Probably aren't too many Danish nationalists who say that, uh, because a nationalist says not only that I love my country, that's patriotism, but my country's superior. Now, I happen to believe our country is superior, so to that extent, I'm a nationalist. Superior in the sense that it embodies, as Margaret Thatcher said, it was made by a philosophy that is right and that uh, it's not suitable for all people at all times, but everyone ought to aspire to it. So that extent, I'm a nationalist. I don't want to export it mm-hmm. at the at bayonet point. I want to make it available to people. I want to help them where we can, and we have a lot of experience with the civil society of a democratic society. Uh, so I'm a, a, a mild nationalist. Right. Uh, the, the, the metaphor or the analogy I often use is that um, nationalism is like salt. If you, if you cook, you know that a little salt is absolutely necessary to bring the flavors together. Yep. Too much ruins it, and way too much literally is poisonous. Yes. It's, it's the, all poisons are determined by the dose. But <clears throat> one of the things that I found so remarkable about the chapter on Wilson is that it is just at the moment where conservatives are finally really re- realizing the true horror of Woodrow Wilson. I mean, I think he's literally the worst president in American history. Um, Not anymore. There, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> they're, uh, um, they're buying in, as you describe it, many of the fundamental assumptions that Wilson brought to bear about what government does and what a nation is. He hated this idea of, of, of competing zones of liberty, of disunity. Um, he wanted to bind the, the whole country together and make the, the government in Washington the singular voice of the will of the nation. And so even as people on the right are embracing this idea that Wilson was bad, his, his ba- some of his basic assumptions about the role of government are sneaking in through the back door, which I just think is a profound irony. Absolutely, and they actually come in through the front door of the modern presidency, which is ubiquitous, which is everywhere, and which is plebiscitory, that, uh, in fact, presidents should be able to do whatever they want to do until someone tries to stop them. So isn't one, just to get on that point, it, it, isn't the great, the, 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 the greatest charge of dereliction of duty over the last century 
isn't about the presidency. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson had a point, is that the founders expected whoever held a job in federal government to be a jealous guardian of their faction or their branch yeah. of government. The, the people who've really dropped the ball is Congress, right? They've just right. basically outsourced their role. The, the one thing Madison did not anticipate, could not have, but really got wrong was he said, Congress, the legislative branch, will always be dominant because it will draw into its impetuous vortex all the powers. Well, it's been spinning off powers right, right and left. Um, the, great mo- the great change, in a way, was the first two words in Franklin Roosevelt's first fireside chat were, my friends. Try to imagine George Washington right. addressing an American audience, <laughs> my friends or Chester Arthur, or Grover Cleveland. No one expected presidents to be our friends, and I still don't want the president to be my friend. I want him to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, which pretty much defines his Article II powers. Um, And this will seem like a cheap shot right at the buzzer, because we're almost out of time. But since we're at C-SPAN, I thought I'd get it in there. Uh, The... Implementation, the introduction of cameras into Congress, which C-SPAN is centrally involved in. Uh, where do you come down on what that meant for American democracy? <laughs> well, as I recall, I opposed it at the time for all the, all the normal reasons. Uh-huh. It has not had quite the baneful effect. Uh, if they're not on the floor posturing, they'll step outside to the, the Senate or House chambers and do the posturing. It's not had, I think, the deleterious effect that I feared. Okay. Fair enough. I might disagree with you. But George Will, thank you very much. The book is The Conservative Sensibility by George F. Will. And uh, thank you very much for doing this. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too. Thanks.